Hey, U.S. Cellular customers, I've got good news, so don't hit skip forward just yet. I'm talking about their special customer event, Us Days. What's Us Days? It means exclusive offers just for their customers, just to say thanks, like up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. No, I didn't misread that. That's up to $1,200 off. They must really like you all. Us Days at U.S. Cellular. Exclusive offers just for you, just to say thanks. Right now, U.S. Cellular customers could get up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. Visit uscellular.com for terms and restrictions. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I didn't yeah. come to Gwinnett until 97. So okay. I've been in South Carolina. Um, but, of course, everyone <laughs> comes to Gwinnett, they hear, they hear this case, right? This is this is, this is is academy level. We all, this case is discussed, right? Really? Because it's, it's lore. It's, it's, it's le- legend. Of, it's bad stuff happens sure. in Gwinnett. It's all history of Gwinnett, right? Yeah. I'm, that's interesting to me. I mean, I, I imagine as... An officer coming into GCPD, especially if you're not from Georgia, yeah, you you Google or you search or research or you hear stories, and so it's always uh, this this is this the chapel. Everyone knows the chapel case. Everyone knows the chapel case. Lately, that statement has become more and more evident. Everywhere I go, the legend of this case seems to creep into conversations conversations with law enforcement, file clerks, court administrators, everyone knows the Michael Chappell story. The only difference being exactly what they've heard, because the devil is in the details. What do you hear when you, uh, if you remember, regarding that case when you come in, you know what I mean? Why do you just hear the basics, right? The basics, you know, this is what happened, this is what he did, you know, blah, blah, blah. A yeah, cop yeah. killed somebody. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. That, that's what, what he was convicted of. Um, and of course, I coming up, and I, I have good friends who work with my chapel. You know, I, I was on SWAT with GCPD, so he was on SWAT back in the day. So you hear, I work with guys on SWAT. I work with guys who are on patrol with them, uh, who work, you know, different stuff. And you know, you hear all, all the, you know, just what their experiences were yeah. back then. You hear both sides, I'm sure. Right. I'm Sean Kipe. From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Land of Lies. Several times now, you've heard mention of a man referred to simply as the Russian, who was implicated in the armored car robbery attempt in 1992, shortly after the White Boys Against Crime ring was broken up. And you might have been wondering why he keeps coming up, or what does he have to do with Michael Chappell's story? Not to be confused with Boris Korchak, our KGB CIA double agent turned investigator, The Russian was an amateur boxer named Mark Kogan, who immigrated to the U.S. from the former Soviet Union in the late 80s. 
According to several articles in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kogan was a loner, a heavy drinker who, quote, had a passion for prostitutes. He could be very violent, was intimidating, had few friends, and had made many enemies in his short time in America. Kogan was later identified by the driver in that armored car robbery. Right, but you gotta remember, Kogan was the only person that the driver was able to positively identify. And one other person, and that's the person that's never been found, and the person that was in the van with the 50 caliber rifle. Before the murder of Emma Jean Thompson, an unidentified man, who Danny Porter believes was possibly Mike Chappell, fired shots from a 50 caliber high-powered rifle from a nearby parked van, while Kogan and another unidentified man, possibly Chappell's brother-in-law, according to Porter, unsuccessfully attempted to rob the armored car, shooting one of the guards in the process. The 50 caliber is not, I don't think, is what shot the guard, but they were punching holes in the armored car with a 50 caliber rifle. You think that Chapel is associated with that too? Yes, because it's because uh, the guy who's never been found um, matches the description of Chapel's brother-in-law. But I mean, you know, the police went down and police went down and made the presentation to the DA down there, and he declined it. So, I, you know. Whether Kogan's fate was related to the armored car robbery or not is unclear, but he clearly crossed someone, because in August of 1992, his decaying body was found 12 days after being reported missing from work. He had been struck in the head with a blunt object, thought to be a metal baseball bat, stabbed numerous times, and wrapped in a blanket bound with packing tape. This grotesque style of murder initially led some investigators to believe he could be tied in with Russian organized crime. But they also felt that the killer was familiar with the area, a local, as Kogan's body was found on the side of a dirt road in an area isolated from any main thoroughfare. That dirt road also happened to be very close to where Emma Jean and Michael Thompson lived. Then 16-year-old Dennis Shelton was familiar with the area because he would often give Michael Thompson a ride home from the Subway restaurant where they both worked. And believe it or not, Shelton became an early suspect in the Kogan murder, though no one is really clear on why. Even Danny Porter can't quite remember the details at this point. Shelton, I think Shelton knew the Russian that was found dead, Mark Kogan. And as Henry tells me, he believes Shelton was considered a suspect for a brief period in Emma Jean Thompson's murder as well. I mean, here you've got a kid that was the suspect in a gruesome murder when he was, you know, barely 16 years old, 15, 16 years old. And I mean, you know, not just a, you know, somebody got hit with a car, somebody got shot. I mean, this this was a brutal stabbing, you know, where the, where the guy was repeatedly stabbed, including in his feet. You know, so th- this is a gangland-style assassination, you know, that you've got this 15-, 16-year-old kid that was at least at one point a suspect in and somehow connected to, and then he is immediately a suspect in the Imogene Thompson murder. The statements that were taken by Dave Baker, you know, there, there's a woman saying, hey, man, I'm scared of this guy. This is all the stuff I know about him. You know, I know that Michael Thompson's mom told him where the money was, and then he told Dennis Shelton, and then three days later, 
you know, somebody went in and stole the money. And, and then somehow, because Mike was summoned to that scene, they make Mike Chapel a suspect in the murder. And they just decide not to, you know, not to even corroborate the alibis of this, you know, 16-year-old who's now been a suspect in two murders and not to corroborate the alibi of Michael Thompson, which we know his alibi didn't line up with his alibi witness. One of them, if not both of them, were lying to the police. Same thing with Dennis Shelton and his alibi witness. One or both of them were lying to the police. But the police just said, okay, no problem. But how does Henry even know for sure that Dennis Shelton was a suspect in Imogene Thompson's murder? Well, I mean, there's a four-page supplemental report written by Dave Baker, the uh, lead investigator for the district attorney at the time. That four-page report literally names Dennis Shelton as the suspect in the murder and armed robbery of Imogene Thompson. And that, that report was filed on April 21st, 1993, two days prior to Mike Chappell's arrest. The problem is the document that Ball has made public is not complete. So when you read it, there's no there's there's at least one page missing. Because if you read down to the bottom of it and then you go to the next top of the next page, there's no continuity. So I can tell you it's it's not complete. But the second thing is is that was a standard procedure and like I said, our investigators were part of the investigative team. And all that tells me, because I've seen the document, is that Dave Baker went out and interviewed Dennis Shelton and wrote it up. And the handwritten thing on the top is where it was included as, a, as an exhibit in the original investigator's report. Okay, so the what I'm looking at here, yeah, it says suspect Dennis Shelton, white male, age 16, charge murder, armed robbery scenario. Then it walks through, of course, Imogene Thompson's uh, April 16th, 1993. Investigator Barnhart and I responded to the scene of a possible homicide. Yeah, that's what's called a supplemental report. It's not an application for an arrest warrant. Well, even if it's not a, an application for an arrest warrant, does that mean that Dennis Shelton was being looked at as a potential suspect? Sure. I'm, I, I, he may have possibly been on the day of the murder, but... You have to wonder, what was it exactly that caused Shelton, a 16-year-old, to be suspected in involvement of Imogene Thompson's death? And how and why was he cleared? Once information obtained from eyewitnesses started pointing to the fact that a police officer appeared to be involved, it does seem that Dennis Shelton was cleared, and his name never really comes up again. That is, until Pamela Holcomb rediscovered the latent fingerprints taken from inside Emma Jean Thompson's car. Prints that have never been identified, but were determined to be too small to belong to an adult. One of those was taken from, uh, I believe, the passenger front door on the outside. 
and the others were taking taken from the passenger side on the interior. I don't know for certain it was the dashboard, windshield, window. I, I don't I don't know that for certain, but I know that they were there. And I also do know this that they were filed in the latent fingerprint file at GCPD headquarters. If they they filed them in the latent fingerprint file, they should have been comparable at least to some degree, even as partials. We know there was a set of fingerprints on that side of the car that were described as too young for an adult. Well, how about a young adult? How about a teenager? How about a scrawny kid? Who was the suspect, the initial district attorney suspect in this murder and in a previous murder and was an initial suspect in the robbery that took place at Imogene Thompson's house? So this kid is connected to this case This kid may very well have been connected to the Rose, and let me give you one last little piece of evidence about the Rose. If you look at it, it looks like the kind of Rose you would stop at a a Kroger or someplace that has, you know, one of those 24-hour floral, um, you know, where you can pick up roses for your wife's anniversary or whatever. Well, the last place that Dennis Shelton was that night with his girlfriend was the Kroger right down the street. Did Dennis Shelton buy the rose? I don't know, but somebody put it there and it wasn't Michael Thompson, it wasn't Imogene Thompson and it wasn't Michael Chapel. because if any of the three of those fingerprints had been on that rose, we would absolutely know about it, especially Michael Chapel. Whoever prints that they found on that wrapping of that rose that was found on the dashboard had disappeared and the uh, property sheets were manipulated by Burnett to hide. That would probably be, if not the shooter, then somebody that was there. Because that is such a drastic, desperate act of destroying evidence and manipulation of evidence. My police mind can't wrap around why somebody would do that, unless it was just so damning. I tried my best to reach Dennis Shelton, who would be around 46 years old today. But all I got was a whole lot of this. Your call cannot be completed Sorry, or dialed. Please check the number, number and you have reached. Hello, somebody call me. And then there's the yellow rose. The one single rose left on the dashboard of Emma Jean Thompson's car. I've seen pictures of it taken while it was in her car. But did it have fingerprints on it? And if so, whose were they? Could that person be another viable suspect? Could it be 16-year-old Shelton? And why was it discarded instead of being presented to the defense, or at least kept in a box with all of the other retained evidence? And what was that yellow rose doing on the dashboard of Emma Jean Thompson's car in the first place? Was there some significance to it? These answers may or may not lead us to a new suspect in Emma Jean Thompson's murder, but Henry feels that the yellow rose, even though it no longer exists, has really become the epitome of everything wrong with this case. Well, that's that's really what it is. It, it, it's it's a it's a piece of evidence in a long line of evidence that has either been mishandled, destroyed, discarded, manufactured, tampered with. There's just been a laundry list of you know, items that any, you know, in any case I've ever looked at or researched um, would be considered prosecutorial misconduct and Brady violations at, you know, at a very minimum. 
And I mean, it's not one, it's not two, it's, you know, I could rattle off at least a dozen solid violations just off the top of my head. It really culminates in that yellow rose. That yellow rose is really kind of a, a good symbol for the case because here you have a piece of evidence that, you know, we do know existed. We've, we've now seen the crime scene photos and those crime scene photos also were suppressed. But through the crime scene photos, we know that it existed. And there's one more crucial piece of the puzzle, according to Henry, that could prove Chapel is innocent. It's you, that you can't be at two places at one time. We know what the window of death is, and we know about when Imogene Thompson, there's really only a 10-minute window when it was possible. Um, she left her house at 9.50. She was first seen at the Glencoe muffler shop by herself at 9.55. And then at 10 o'clock, the car uniquely matching the description of her son's car was seen back to back at 10 o'clock with three individuals. So sometime between 9.50 and just after 10 p.m. is when the murder occurred. But here's the kicker. When that occurred, we know that Mike was at Firehouse 14 with six firemen, two other police officers, and he was responding to dispatch to go to a call in the opposite direction. He made a quick stop at his gym. We have witnesses to that. And then he went to the call where he arrived at 11 minutes after 10. He was courteous and nice. And then he went back to the precinct for end of watch. The bottom line is you can't be at two places at once. And we know that Michael Harold Chapel was at Firehouse 14 at 9.56 when dispatch reached him to go to Arden Road. He was not at the Glencoe Muffler Shop. Aside from the fact that we have witnesses from the firehouse that he did take that dispatch call at the firehouse, Mike has always maintained that, hey, I was standing right by the firehouse speaker, you know, the mounted speaker in the ceiling that was 14 inches away from it when I responded to dispatch. Well, if that's true, then the police dispatch would have picked up the background noise, which is the firehouse. And so that tape should clear any questions about where Mike was at 9.56 p.m. The problem is, is that that tape disappeared. So where is that tape? Where is that missing dispatch tape? The tape that could prove Chapel was at the firehouse at the time of the murder, and therefore could prove his innocence. The same tape that could also possibly destroy his entire alibi. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Recently, Chapel found out that his case was being reviewed by the newly elected district attorney of Gwinnett County, Patsy Austin Gatson's Convictions Integrity Unit. Gatson, an advocate for justice and fairness, created the unit to prevent, identify, and remedy wrongful convictions, according to the office's website. This new development was promising for Chapel and his supporters. Yeah, so I got a call yesterday from from an attorney that uh, I, I have some dealings with. She joined the Michael Chapel is Innocent Project group. She's read the book. And yesterday she called and she said that her and her business partner had been in direct communication with an investigator from the district attorney's office and that he had confirmed to them that Michael Chapel's case uh, was essentially at the front of the line now with the Convictions Integrity Unit. They were aware of the case. It had been one in many that were being looked at, but uh, I think because of our recent efforts and the information that they've learned about the case, they've essentially moved it to the front of the line. It means that what we've been really pushing for appears to be in the process. And that's really for Mike just to get a fair shake and a, a fair and honest look. Chapel once again remained hopeful that someone, somewhere, after 16 failed attempts to clear his name in court over the past 29 years, would now see the truth he says is evident. Hopeful the new district attorney would be that someone. But once again, he would be let down. Henry called me to share the news. Mike got a little bit of bad news today. He received a notice from the Convictions Integrity Unit from Patsy Austin Gatson's office that they're not going to take up his case. So she doesn't give any reasoning. She just basically says that they've closed the case. On April 1st of this year, Chapel had a parole hearing the day before Henry and I visited him at Long Unit State Prison. I spoke with him shortly after he received the news of the parole board's decision. He had been denied parole. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, but you can imagine we're disappointed, but not dissuaded. We just, uh, it's gonna happen. It's just not on our time frame. That's all. Like I said, it's very disappointing. For the second time in 29 years, Mike Chappell has been denied his freedom through parole. It truly astonishes me that after so long, after so many kicks in the gut, Mike still possesses the will to remain hopeful. I can't tell you that Mike is innocent or guilty, and I wonder how those of you hearing this story feel. But it's clear to me 
that he will never give up. He will never lay down or bow out of the fight, not just for his freedom, but to clear his name. Aaron, his ever-faithful wife, shares in his frustration. It just makes me so mad how they've done him. I'm just livid. But, you know, God's working on me. He's like, I need you just to sit back and enjoy this because he's fixing to come home and you've stressed enough about it. But it's hard, you know, it's, it's harder than hard. And the kids, I've always told them, he's coming home, he's coming home. And, you know, they went through all their anger and, you know, I'm mad at God. I'm pushing him away. I'm like, that's okay. He'll still be there when you get back. And then their dad would work on them a little bit too, you know, just to give them hope. It's, it's hard. I, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. I mean, they basically said, hey, this guy, you know, is willing to wantonly murder an innocent grandmother for a few bucks and after his conviction called him the most despicable man in Georgia. And his family, you know, had to live with that chapel name. His wife had to figure out how to raise her kids without their father, though they stood by his side and they never believed he was guilty. It's made him be viewed by, among other things, news media in Atlanta as the most despicable man in Georgia. And it's absolutely unfair. It's absolutely not true. This whole story could seemingly be summed up with one thing. Missing evidence. I have to agree with Henry on at least one thing. Why would any potential evidence need to be thrown out in a case as high profile as this? Everything that has gone MIA, the rose, fingerprints, the 38 caliber pistol found at the American Inn, could fit into one small box. There are 17 boxes of files and documents at the courthouse pertaining to this case. So what's one more? And what happened to the blood samples taken from the armrest of Chapel's patrol car? What happened to the fingerprints, the dispatch tape, and the raincoat? Is that raincoat still in the evidence? Yeah, it's in a box in the evidence room in the DA's office, or it should be. Have you asked to or have you reviewed the DA's file as opposed to the clerk's file? And this is when I realized, thanks to Mr. Porter, that there are actually 21 more boxes of evidence pertaining to Mike Chappell's case that exist, still housed at the DA's office. These are the files that Pamela Holcomb viewed. In these files are kept the physical evidence from the case. That's what I want to see. I reached out to the DA's office through an open records request, but to my dismay, I was told that physical evidence doesn't fall within the guidelines of such a request. I want to know what's in these boxes. I want to know if there's something Henry is missing. If we searched those boxes, would we find the yellow rose, the fingerprints, the raincoat? And with all the talk of this raincoat, I still don't understand why the blood spatter was never DNA tested, being such a key piece of evidence. See, I, I never looked at it that, that much that way. I thought it was I thought it was just another piece of evidence like the $100 bills. I, I, it, 
because if you take the raincoat out of it, it's not conclusive one way or the other. So, I mean, it would have been nice if, you know, her blood was on the right arm of the raincoat, but I just never, I, I never considered it as a, with everything else as a pivotal piece of information. So you, you didn't need it one way or the other at that point. Right. With the advancements of DNA today, is it possible to retest any of those things? And would you potentially get a different outcome? I don't know. the. I mean, you'd have to talk to a scientist about that. I, I, with where that's been and what it's been through. And, and you know, because it went out to the jury, basically pinned to the board that it was presented in. I don't know to what extent they handled it. It wasn't, uh, you know, I I knew that at that point the chain of custody was broken on it. So it hasn't been secured in a way that you would with a biological sample. To Mr. Porter's argument, Chappell's case was decided without the raincoat being tested for DNA. So even if we could test it today, and even if, in fact, it's not Emma Jean Thompson's blood across the front of the raincoat, would it even make a difference? I mean, like I keep saying is the jury had all that information. It was presented by the state because we didn't want to hide anything. And it was attacked by the defense counsel. And the jury reconciled it somehow. That's what juries do. The jury reconciled it somehow. Hearing this, I just couldn't take no for an answer from the DA's office on my request to view Chapel's physical evidence. There are just too many unanswered questions in this case, too many unknowns. So I reached out again to Miss Austin Gatson, this time directly to her through email, asking again to view and photograph several key pieces of evidence. I asked to see the raincoat, hear the dispatch call that could potentially prove Chapel's innocence, and see one more piece of evidence that we'll discuss in a moment. And this time, to my surprise, I received a response a few minutes later telling me that my request had been granted. Attached to the email was a digital audio file. After listening to it, I immediately called Henry. Hello, Mr. Kite. You want to hear something crazy? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you'll never guess what I've got. What you got? I've got the Arden Road tape. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. Oh my God, dude. Sean. Oh my God, dude. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Hey, U.S. Cellular customers, I've got good news, so don't hit skip forward just yet. 
I'm talking about their special customer event, Us Days. What's Us Days? It means exclusive offers just for their customers, just to say thanks, like up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. No, I didn't misread that. That's up to $1,200 off. They must really like y'all. Us Days at U.S. Cellular. Exclusive offers just for you, just to say thanks. Right now, U.S. Cellular customers could get up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. Visit uscellular.com for terms and restrictions. The file I received from the Gwinnett County District Attorney's Office contained what we've referred to as the Arden Road Dispatch Call. Henry could barely contain himself when I told him I had it, because that's the call Chapel says he took while at Firehouse 14 at 9.56 p.m., at approximately the same time the murder of Emma Jean Thompson occurred, proving he couldn't have committed the crime. I couldn't click on the file fast enough to listen, and when I did, a lot of it sounded like this. It's so staticky you can barely make anything out. So I ran the file through multiple programs to clean the audio up, pressed play, and this is what I heard. April 15, 1993. Police dispatched to 4620 Arden Drive. The time is 215634. 3.32. 3932. Though the file is old and the equipment used to record it in 1993 is severely outdated, making it difficult to hear detail even after digital restoration you most certainly can hear some type of chatter in the background. You can hear a male voice just before Chapel responds with 10-4 at the end of the clip. Listen again. Signal 23, signal 88 to property at 4620, 4620, Arden Drive of Thompson Mill. Arden. This is a huge development in this story, one even Henry wasn't expecting. And though this tape is not as clear as we had hoped, one thing is clear. There is chatter in the background on this dispatch call. Some of it does appear to be on the dispatcher's end, but there is at least one place where there seem to be background voices heard on Chapel's end. I cannot overstate the importance of what we've all just heard here. That is indeed Chapel's voice speaking with the dispatcher. It does seem to reinforce the possibility of Chapel being at the firehouse while taking this call. It also creates doubt in my mind that you could, with any kind of certainty, say that he wasn't. And if that's the case, that he was at the firehouse, then it would be nearly impossible for him to have committed the murder because he wouldn't have had enough time to leave the firehouse, go to the gym, kill Miss Thompson, then report to the Arden Road call, calm and collected, as was reported. There simply wouldn't be enough time to do all this, even if Chapel wanted to kill Miss Thompson. But we weren't finished. Henry and I once again headed for the Gwinnett County Superior Courthouse, though this time 
we would be visiting the district attorney's office to finally view the raincoat and other physical evidence. How you doing? Oh, how are you? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm Sean Kipe. I've got a perfect, perfect timing. Hey. Come right around the side of me and get you. Thank you. How you doing, sir? Good. Henry and I were met by a member of the DA's digital forensics team and the evidence custodian who located two full boxes of physical evidence in the building's storage area. The boxes were brought to a conference room where we waited anxiously. The raincoat was first to be unpacked from a brown paper bag, then removed from a clear evidence bag and splayed out on the table. Now I'm going to take everything out. I've got yep, gloves, so yep, I'll yep. handle. You guys can take photographs. If there's anything you want to see, I'm going to sit on this detail. side. That's okay. Um, yeah, so that's And good. I'll get this out if you want to look at this. The raincoat. Yeah, the raincoat. And then, of course, you see all the circles. Yeah, you know, this thing's no, nice I, anyway, so yeah. take your pictures, and I'll bag this thing back up. Oh, no, no, you, no, this is great. Um, and you know what all these little the little black marks are? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the circle. <laughs> no, these are the serologist circles, the blue ones. Do you know what the black ones are? Yeah. Those are the ones that Danny had made after the trial started with the naked eye. I photographed the raincoat, and we inspected it, making sure not to touch it. And you could smell the foul stench of must and mold and deteriorating vinyl. You could clearly see the circles made by the prosecution team to showcase the small spats of blood on the front side. Though at this point, after 29 years, what's believed to be blood looks brown. And it's hard to differentiate that from mold spots to my untrained eye. But we certainly did not see the amount of blood on the raincoat that we were expecting from two close contact gunshots. If the blood was ever going to be tested for DNA, assuming it's not already too late, now is the time, as the raincoat itself is beginning to fall apart. And look at the table. That thing's been in there forever, and that's probably a lot of mold and dirt and whatever, but... Starting to break down. Now I want to present to you one final piece of the Michael Chappell saga. I've known from the beginning of this series of the existence of yet another 38 caliber revolver. It was found by Kenneth Peanut Cantrell and turned in to Gwinnett County Police shortly before Chapel's trial began. Now remember, Peanut was the one trying to sell kilos of cocaine to Steve Mitchell and an undercover GBI agent. But truthfully, I didn't see any significance of this gun at the time I found out about it. It just seemed like an innocuous item that happened to be connected to this story only because it matched the caliber of the murder weapon. I even discussed it with Danny Porter. There was a rusted out old gun that was found on the side of Buford Highway, actually not far from the precinct. And it was, it didn't have a handle on it. It was all rusted out and it was turned in to the police. That was sent down to the crime lab, and Kelly Fight spoke to Jack Burnett and said, I can't testify to this in court, but I don't think you need to look any further for your murder weapon. But the gun was all rusted out, couldn't be ballistically tested, and, I mean, it is in awful shape. The cylinder falls out of the frame when you pick the gun up. It is in the evidence room, and one day I showed it to Pam, 
And I explained what I just explained to you. Because I couldn't lay the foundation for it, the jury never saw it. What do you mean by you couldn't lay the foundation for it? I couldn't establish... First of all, I couldn't establish it was the murder weapon, so it wasn't relevant. Number two... I mean, I could say I, 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 they had it documented who turned it in. And, but that guy would say, well, I was walking along the road and I looked on the, you know, in the grass and there it was. And that's all I can tell you. So I couldn't link it. I couldn't prove it was a murder weapon and I couldn't link it to chapel. So there's no way to get it into court. So the jury never saw it. And it was, it was too rusted out to be tested. Right. Amateur investigator Pamela Holcomb had stumbled onto this gun when digging through the case files in 2010 and documented it. She took photos in which you can clearly see the serial number, make and model of the gun, and several bullets. It's a Charter Arms 38 caliber snub nose, slightly rusted on the barrel, handle intact. Holcomb stated that Mr. Porter told her the same thing he just told me that it was considered to likely be the murder weapon. But because it could not be tied to Chapel, it was never presented to the defense or the jury. And due to its condition, as Mr. Porter told me, it could not be forensically tested. The forensic specialist Kelly Fight later testified at trial that he had tested and fired every weapon that had been brought to him by Gwinnett County Police. Pam Holcomb went so far as to sign a notarized affidavit that reads, while searching in due diligence in Mr. Daniel J. Porter's office about the case of Michael Harold Chapel, this information was discovered. A pistol was claimed to be the murder weapon. The chain of custody has been compromised and the probability of secondary transfer to the evidence rendering it contaminated is high. Basically, what Pamela is saying is, hey, you know, they've just got this piece of evidence, you know, thrown in an evidence box with other physical evidence. Um, including, you know, the, the blood index cards. So flaked blood from either Michael Chappell or Imogene Thompson could have found its way onto the gun. So I think that's what she's talking about in terms of contamination. But Danny Porter's already told you he had no way to connect that gun to Michael Chappell because that gun was in no way connected to Michael Chappell. So the point of the contamination is not really the issue. The issue is the suppression of the evidence and the fact that the defense had no idea that that gun existed until 2010. This gun was actually the main piece of evidence I was interested in seeing while at the DA's office. Because according to Danny Porter, it's considered to likely be the murder weapon. And sure enough, the officer helping us pulled from the evidence box another paper bag housing a clear plastic bag. He slowly removed and laid out on the table a slightly rusted 38 caliber revolver. Have you seen guns in this condition that were tested ballistically? Oh yeah, yeah, and I've tested guns ballistically. If I found this, like this is like something that's been laying around and it obviously has rust on it because it's been sitting, you know, for so long. Once forensics is done, DNA swipes, fingerprints, doing everything they have to do to this gun to get evidence off of it, and then I'm clear to function test it, then yeah, I would take it, I'd clean it up, scrub it up, oil it, get it, 
working again because who long has been sitting out there, then I can function test it. Um, as it is now with the amount of rust on that, it, you'd be lucky you could try it. But I don't know, if, you know how safe it'd be. But that's 29 years later, so yes, you would expect exactly. that. Right. Right, I would expect that because that's yeah. like something I found in the river. The gun provided clearly looked like it was in too good of condition to be the one that Porter had described, which he said was heavily rusted and falling apart. We pulled up the pictures that Pamela Holcomb took of the suspected murder weapon. We compared the serial numbers, and Henry pointed something out. Is that? Is this the same gun? Yep. All right. Because the other side's got the... Yeah. yeah. What's that one? Is it? Let me see. Let me look. Doesn't look like it, actually. Doesn't look like it, no. Does it? no. I would say no. And even the screw marks, see, there's no screws. All right. The, this, is, this is pinned, that's screwed. I would say no, that is not the same gun. This wasn't the right gun. That's interesting. So what gun is that? So Dickens, who's our evidence custodian, is going back. So he said, yes, there is another gun. And as promised a few minutes later, another gun arrives is unpacked and placed on the table. Okay, so this is a snubby here. Is that it? Here, this one, now see that? That's not the same gun either, is it? Uh Uh-uh. Are those the only two guns you got? That I have, yes. So what happened to the other gun that was in that file? That we know was there, because there were pictures taken of it. What happened to the 38 caliber revolver that Pamela Holcomb saw? It's potentially the most important piece of evidence in this entire case. Because if this gun matches the bullets that were removed from the crime scene and cannot be tied to Michael Chappell, this could be proof that he is innocent and that there may be validity to claims of a conspiracy or an attempt to conceal evidence. If this really is the murder weapon and it's not tied to Chappell, then that means that someone else used this gun to kill Imogene Thompson. Now, you must, at this point, ask yourself why this possible exculpatory evidence, this suspected murder weapon, was never tested and never even provided to Chapel's defense team to examine. We know that it existed because it was viewed and photographed by Pamela Holcomb in 2010. And why were there two other handguns kept in the files? one of which we actually later traced back to Officer Brian Reddy by the serial number, two handguns that seem to have absolutely no evidentiary value whatsoever. Where is the gun in question? Most of us have heard about Brady violations and understand what Brady violations are. It essentially means that the prosecution cannot suppress potentially exculpatory evidence. It doesn't have to be exculpatory. It has to be potentially exculpatory. In other words, if there was a chance that this might be exculpatory uh, in the case of a murder weapon not connected to the murder suspect, then yeah, it's exculpatory. And so they had a, a responsibility, a legal responsibility, to provide that information to the defense. And Danny Porter told you from his own mouth, I couldn't connect this to Michael Chappell, and therefore I I didn't bring it into evidence. 
Henry will continue helping the Chapel family in their fight for Mike's freedom to the best of his ability. But at this point, he knows he's out of his league when it comes to a legal battle. My name is Billy Rennie, and uh, I'm an attorney. I primarily represent people who are charged with crimes. I do a little bit of civil litigation, but the primary focus of my practice is criminal defense. My passion is, is criminal defense. It's, it's the reason I became an attorney. And so his story, um, it resonated with me in a way that few stories have. I discussed some of the major points of Mike's case with Mr. Rennie, who the Chapel family have now officially retained, including the possibility of a Brady violation related to the missing handgun. It's certainly true that it could be a potential Brady violation, and, and those are exactly the types of issues that we hope to identify and drill down on. Um, the firearm is one of the, the items that certainly stands out. You know, eventually we'll uh, hopefully have the opportunity to make those arguments in a courtroom. But of all the cases Mr. Rennie's firm could take on, I wanted to know why they took on a case as convoluted as Chapel's. I don't think that there's any way he killed Emma Jean Thompson. It just, the, the, there, are, there are too many things about his case that make no sense. When I was first looking at the materials that Henry sent me to kind of start the process with me, I'm reading the case file and I, I'm reading about the, the death of Emma Jean Thompson. And her, her body was found April 16th, 1993. It was my 10th birthday. And I, I think back to all of the things that I've done in my life since, since I was 10 years old. And then it's just, it's, it's devastating to think that since that time, since the, the day of my 10th birthday, Mike Chappell has been in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And it's, I mean, it's, it's just devastating. And so for me, uh, the justice system is flawed in many ways. And, you know, we, we all kind of do our best to work within the structure. But I think that certain people in the original trial were so concerned about winning, about defeating the defense, that they, they lost sight of justice. And I have never come across a less just result than what Mike Chappell has experienced. Mike Chappell's attorney has been retained exclusively by contributions from his supporters. A defense fund has been set up for Chappell. As well, a private donor has offered a $25,000 reward on the Chappell family's behalf for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of Emma Jean Thompson's true killer, as this person believes that Chappell is innocent. And if you'd like to find out more about that and stay informed on what's happening with the case, just go to Facebook and search for the Michael Chapel is Innocent group that Henry Ball oversees or visit michaelchapel.com. In this podcast, you've heard about mishandled evidence, lost and stolen audio and video surveillance tapes, untested DNA, pressured witnesses, alibis that don't line up, and of the suicide of a Gwinnett County police officer shortly after an investigation into him began. You've heard Chapel's fellow officers, family and friends standing by his claims of innocence. You've heard of missteps made by investigators and of evidence that has gone missing, has been discarded, or was kept from Chapel's defense team and the jury at his trial. 
You've heard of the purse that was found behind Imogene Thompson's trailer with no blood present, after Chapel was already in prison. You've heard how poorly Chapel was treated while in jail awaiting trial, having been denied food and medical treatment. You've also heard from former District Attorney Danny Porter, a skilled and extremely effective prosecutor with a long history of taking criminals and thugs off the streets, present the state's argument on this case. You've heard that Imogene Thompson's blood was found in Chapel's patrol car, but that it could have also been planted there. You've heard Porter say that Chapel wasn't the hero cop he's been made out to be. He was instead a killing machine who gave a lackluster performance on the job. You've heard that the victim's son, Michael Thompson, was suspected of stealing the initial $7,000 from his mother, and that his alibi doesn't line up with his alibi witness, Amy Parker, leaving an unsettling feeling for everyone listening to this story unfold. And while their stories seem to be ever-changing, some things sound oddly familiar. She was beautiful inside and out. She was a person that if she had a dollar, she'd give you 99 cents of it. She would give you their own shirt off her back. She was just, I guess, just a good mom. I mean, she uh, she would have given her the shirt off her back if you needed it. I mean, if you needed anything, all you had to do was just ask, you know, she would just give it to you. And Whether or not you agree with Henry Ball and the statements he's made, I think what he's doing is a powerful sentiment. He's seen something in Mike Chappell's case that he feels is an injustice, and he's committed to stopping at nothing until he's proved it. I admire the sheer determination it takes to do that. Few people have that tenacity. The debate amongst the team producing this podcast has also rendered a wide range of viewpoints. I've heard from some of the team that perhaps Chappell did in fact commit the murder but that with all the new evidence uncovered in this case, he would not likely be convicted in a retrial. With all of these new facts, he simply would not be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I've also heard the team argue whether or not Chapel has provided compelling enough evidence to exonerate himself. But the discovery of the dispatch tape and this missing gun has some of them reconsidering their earlier opinions. So, after hearing all of this, what do you believe? Is Mike Chappell an innocent man framed for murder? Did he receive an unfair trial? Have his constitutional rights been violated? Or is he a cold-blooded killer with no regard for human life who will rightfully spend the rest of his days in prison? And if Michael Chappell is innocent, then he's a victim here as well. Half of his life stolen from him and his family, while he's wasted away in a tiny concrete cell. But in the end, the true victim is, of course, Miss Emogene Thompson, an innocent woman simply doing the best she could for her family. A woman with a kind soul who loved to laugh. A woman whose life was ruthlessly and needlessly taken from her. All for a little bit of money. Money that's long gone. While the hurt and the pain of all those affected lives on.
I feel remorse mainly for everybody involved, from Miss Thompson, of course, our family, my family, all the people. There's, there's so many victims in this, so many victims. The fact that the justice system completely and utterly failed, something I really believed in, as bad as it is, you know, it's still the best. It's still the best in the world, warts and all. But it needs, it needs correcting so bad. There's just so much. I see so much for just around me. I, I'm not the only one. I see it out there. And the simple fact that uh, the mechanisms are supposed to address this, getting getting back to court, the evidence is there about all the constitutional violations and the criminal acts that this uh, XDA did, yet it was uh, totally ignored. Just totally ignored. I mean, and... The fact that we never have been able to get uh, justice for this in all these years, and it is so mind-numbing, mind-numbingly uh, frustrating. That's what, uh, for myself and my family, my kids, you know, they grew up, they grew up having to deal with this, not being there for all those moments. I know, I know, I can't get one second back. It's just something that's got to be dealt with. So I just, I just hate it. That's it. I did not kill Emma Jean Thompson. I did not kill Emma Jean Thompson. I was where I said I was the night of. I was with the fireman at the fire station, doing what we always do during such circumstances we had that night. Oh, so terribly boring what we were doing, just being there and not out killing folks and doing what these people say was being done. But I did not kill Imogene Thompson. I let her down by not recognizing the danger she was in from these others involved. And, I re and I'll forever uh, have to live with that. But I did not kill Emma Jean Thompson. In the Land of Lies is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was written and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and performed the original music score. Story editor is Jason Hoke, and executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Creative producer is Henry Ball, and you can find Henry's book, Michael Chapel, at storiedpress.store. For updates about this and all of my podcasts, follow me on social media at Sean Kipe. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review. And as always, thanks for listening. Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. <laughs>